0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Donato is um, a pediatrician and um, the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity, Professor of Pediatrics and Health Research and Policy, and the Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford. We were really fortunate to get Dr. Maldonado to come today because she's usually off in some distant part of the world stamping out infectious diseases or creating policy or whatever. So Dr. Maldonado, she will be talking about something that I really don't quite understand Sphere. So, can you educate us, please? Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to see you. Thank you. I I really want to thank uh, Lucy for being very forward thinking about this topic. It's something that um, uh, we're doing at Stanford, but it's also happening all over the country now, and we thought, she thought, it would be a great idea for you. To hear about some of this, uh, the, the area of um, what we call precision medicine. How many people have heard of precision medicine? Okay. How many people know what it means? Okay. It's it's a tough situation and uh, it's a new concept. I think it's a it's actually simpler than it sounds. But um, but I'm gonna, I'm going to spend the next thirty minutes. Just giving you a high-level overview of what it is, just in a couple slides, and then specifically showing you what we are doing at Stanford with this area, because it's going to be something that I think all of you need to advocate around and understand. Um, so, uh, uh, so let me just go back. Sorry, um, is there a, is this a pointer? Yeah. So this is what our our Stanford Medicine. So we applied to the NIH. They had a uh, a request for applications for what was called precision medicine and health disparities. And we didn't really understand that either, but we put together our own idea of what we thought it was, which I'll explain to you. And we called our center, because we, like, we all like acronyms, especially Stanford, we called it SPHERE. And it stands for Stanford Precision Health for Ethnic and Racial Equity. Now, I know in this group we're talking about different disparities, but we thought, we'll we'll start with racial and ethnic disparities. But this can apply to disparities in many different areas. And so um, I will explain this to you. But first I just wanted to say I am an advisor to... um, uh, Pfizer, I am on the data safety monitoring board for a vaccine study, but otherwise I have no conflicts relevant to the topic that we're discussing today. Um, and so when we talk about Sphere, um, over, the overall concept that we had is that we, the idea of, per, and I'll explain a little bit more about personalized, med, uh, personalized medicine, is really to take um, large data um, that's available anonymously and with, or, and or with permission to really understand giant high level patterns of disease so that we can treat, we can see those patterns and then come focus in on the individual person. And rather than just say, okay, if everyone in here developed a strep throat, this is what I'm gonna give you all. This is the one drug. Obviously for that, we can do it. But let's just say somebody had, we've seen this happen, someone has cancer and they have a particular kind of cancer. And what we can do now is we can take some, in some cases, we can take that tumor, those tumor cells and sequence them and look at areas in that tumor that are unique to that particular tumor that might affect the, uh, the, um, the treatment that, that is involved for that particular cancer in that person. That's what precision medicine is about. Taking the general knowledge we have about diseases and health and really focus them in on the individual so that that person can get treated. One of my personal friends had uh, a, or oral cancer. He, he, this was a couple, a few years ago, able to get that uh, cancer sent off to some specialized lab. They did the sequences and they realized, okay, this is the chemotherapy that won't work and here's the one that will, and he was cured. Now he had a lot of money and he had the ability to go to find all these specialists that were doing these studies that weren't available to lots of other people. That's a big disparity already there. And so if you can apply that to other areas, for example, what about development risk for developmental disabilities? What if, we know that there are certain genetic predispositions and we can say this is what you should be doing if you're uh, planning to have a child or if you're, your child, you know, you had a child and, and that child had issues or et cetera, how do you know that there, you're at, you may be at risk for particular manifestations that we could try to prevent in, in X, Y, Z manner. So this is really taking this vast broad uh, array of knowledge and applying it to the individual. And the idea is that eventually your own physician, your own healthcare provider, or your own practice may be able to give you information that you can follow to help you understand how your uh, own genetic information, your own environmental information, affects um, the way that your um, health will play out over the, over the short term and the long term. Um, the other area there that's important is to understand that... Um, we all, I don't know if we've talked about this today or in other discussions, but we know now that only about 20 to 40 percent of our health in our long lifespan um, is really dependent on genetic and medical factors. It turns out that 60 percent or more of our health outcomes are dependent on environmental factors. And so, if we understand the impact of the environmental factors on the genetic predispositions, that actually is going to go a long way to helping us lead longer, healthier lives or to treat diseases. So that's really the broad-based understanding. And so we were focusing on racial and ethnic disparities primarily because the NIH uh, wanted us to focus in that area. And we thought, okay, Stanford has all of this great uh, experience in genetics, genomics. We can do all of these you know very detailed lab based programs and but how do we translate that into health in human beings and people in the real world and people who actually have less access to care and so that 's where we pulled the two communities together so this program now we 're in our second year, and it 's a twelve million dollar grant um, um, and we are focusing on identifying genetic and biologic markers that we can use to help reduce Uh, disease in minority populations in the U.S. And I'll tell you specifically how we're doing it. And we're just one of about 12 centers. Other centers around the country are focusing on different aspects, but they're all working with minority populations in order to try to understand um, how we can reduce diseases in these populations. So we're trying to develop, first of all, the analytic tools to understand how to, to, to look at this data. We're talking about very large data sets. Um, For example, genetic sequences are run into the hundreds and thousands and millions. And how do you take all those sequence data from many people and try to understand patterns? And we're still trying to understand at a a national and international level what kinds of um, analytic tools we need to develop to to, to be able to do that. It's kind of like looking at the Earth from, uh, from space and seeing the big picture. But when you're sitting here in this room, you really don't know where you are. We need to have that very high-level analytic capacity to be able to look at a gene. The earth is a gene, say, and and say, oh, look, this part of the gene uh, regulates this, and this part regulates that, and we need to understand all of those things, and these are the tools we're trying to develop. And then finally, we want this to be broadly applied. In fact, at Stanford and UCSF as well, and other institutions, precision medicine has become a real calling card now we all want to do this we all want to be able to have our patients come in and uh, first of all do prevention in the communities that's the most important part to say so we want to keep people at home rather than coming in sick Um, and at Stanford we call it precision health rather than precision medicine because the idea is we don't want people to come in and have a disease that we have to diagnose, et cetera. Obviously we will do it and we will do the best we can. We would love it to be health, that is, before you even get sick, before you're even born. How can we give your family a you know markers, kinda of like this twenty three and me approach? How do you know um, where you, uh, what your risks might be and what might trigger them so that we know ahead of time how to keep it healthy. So we talk about predicting and preventing, and then if we have to treat, treating precisely, that is the precise disease that your body has. And so those are, those are the big concepts. Now, (laughs) excuse me, the project that we have is centered in our Center for Population Health Sciences. And population health is, again, very similar to what I just described. It is a study of relationship between health determinants that affect your health outcomes in large populations. And when you look at large populations, you can start seeing patterns popping up. Certain people may be at higher risk for certain problems. For example, we know that stress, children who are brought up in stressful environments actually have uh, cellular markers, um, of stress in their cells that can predict shorter lifespans and other, uh, other, um, health outcomes. And we're just starting to understand that. So we need to understand how, um, our environment really affects our health. And so this is really at the intersection of medicine and public health, because we need to work with communities to make sure we're all engaged. And in Stanford, you can see the list of different researchers that are involved. And this is uh, people who are working in many different areas. Um, Another one, for example, in behavioral health is the idea that we diagnose children who come from very distressed backgrounds with mental health disorders at a higher rate than children who are brought up in less distressed environments. And yet the new model now is the idea, and actually there are researchers here at UCSF and Stanford that are saying, we're misdiagnosing these children. They don't have bipolar disease. They don't have these other diseases that we talk about. They actually have some form almost of PTSD. And you don't treat that the same way as you treat bipolar disease, et cetera. But we've been lumping all of this together. We're starting to try to understand what the environment, how that impacts your behavioral Self and how we can be better at being much more specific about individuals rather than lumping them together and possibly treating them with drugs that may not work as well or may not actually address the problem that these people have. So we're moving into that realm. It's hard going because it's hard to find the funds to do these things. So we're very excited about our opportunities here to be able to start this process. And, And people are doing this around the world in other ways as well, but we we need better data and better ways to understand. So again, the idea of precision health is to predict and prevent disease and not just treat it. That's really the idea. And we try to, and here again, it says, imagine a time where your doctor can really quickly take a snapshot of your problem and say, well, here are, this is what we used to do, but because your specific profile fits this particular treatment reg- regimen, this is what we would think would work best for you and not for other people. And then we hope to get, and we can do that to a certain extent now, but we can be much better at it. So the aims of our center, now this is where we talk about our specific center. We, it's a, you know, these grants, you know, they have lots and lots of requirements. So we had three, we have three research projects, um, and these are projects that are trying to look at these ideas, you know, how can we translate this data into understanding health disparities. And we have five cores, and I'll show you a little bit of what we do. So um, we want to implement these three programs um, with an integrated, and what we call a science team, and the team very much includes our local communities. So everybody in the community that is involved with this really has a part in helping us carry these projects forward. Um, and then we disseminate that information to the communities as well. And we actually um, uh, develop, as you see, we we uh, expand relationships with our partners in our communities so that they can actually inform us about how we should be working and getting the information out to communities to help educate them based on the information that we learn. And finally, again, in the idea of uh, trying to understand tools, we're we're just getting better experience with these genetic and biologic information sets. And really, how do we understand how uh, certain subpopulations, for example, right now we're using race and ethnicity, but we could use other... Things. So one of my colleagues is working on gender and sex differences. So how do women respond differently to drugs and other treatments than men do? And we have virtually no experience with that because all, most, most drugs and most treatments and most clinical studies in the world for helping people out are done in men. Um, they seem that people feel like it's easier to work with men. They're much more compliant, et cetera it's right i mean yeah that's what we hear that's what we hear and we think well so women aren't compliant and women won't come in i mean it's not been my experience i've worked with uh preventing uh, mother-to-child transmission of hiv in african communities and those mothers know that their children's lives are at risk they are a almost 100% compliant with everything we say. So I think this is this old notion that, you know, it's just easier to use men. But it was really astounding, it's only been in the last five years or so that we even understood that most of the drugs that are prescribed in the U.S., most of the studies that have been done around treatment of diseases have been done primarily in males. And it's not that they said, no, you can't be in the study if you're a woman. It's that, well, you know, uh, they, they, the way they cater to the people who come into the trials, they attract more men. They haven't really looked to get women in. And another big uh, problem, which we have to deal with separately, is if you're at risk for becoming pregnant, they don't want to have to deal with that because then you might have to drop out of the study. And, you know, so anyway, there's a lot of problems here. By the way, it turns out that most of the studies, and however you feel about animal studies, there have been a lot of mouse studies and Vir- up until five years ago, all, virtually every study done in mice to look for drug development, etc., were done in male mice. Male mice. So, yeah, it's interesting. And the idea was, well, but the hormones are going to muck up the studies, and then we won't understand if the... Stu- well, but that's the point, right? If a woman takes it, she has hormones too, and so... Um, and so, so basically, when you put the, a drug in women, um, it turns out that it may not work the same way because of those pesky hormones. So, anyway, um, so now there's a rule at the federal level. You have to use, you have to explain why you're not going to use uh, equitable gender distribution in your studies, even in mice. So, anyway, yeah. So, this is, uh, you know, we're, you know, I, I just can't believe that we, you know, you just take certain things for granted, and then you, we found this out. So, we're, we're making slow baby steps forward. So this is the structure of our project. Um, it is, um, the center is housed in the Center for uh, uh, Population Health Sciences. There's a steering committee um, and an administrative core. I run this with, a, with the director of the center. Um, he has, this doctor is Mark Cullen, and Mark has uh, worked in occupational health work for decades. That's where he's been working. So primarily looking at, Bad outcomes of health work, uh, workers in uh, in industrial settings and how you can improve that and i 'm an epidemiologist as well, so I work on populations, although I work in global infectious diseases, so the two of us really have this broader population experience, and we have a lab core. The statistical core, an implementation core, and a consortium core, frankly, I think these two are the most exciting cores. These are, these are great cores as well, but they're doing the standard lab-based sequencing and um, analytics. We're developing, again, new tools to try to understand how to analyze these giant data sets. You know, they're just so big, um, you, it, you would take your lifetime to, in using traditional methods, so we have to learn new methods to do that. Um, but these cores are the ones that really engage with the community. And we've done such a, I feel like we've done a really great job of reaching out and here are the three projects. There's three big projects and I'll go into brief a brief description of them. So the first project is really exciting. It's called bracelet and that stands for bio repository for American Indian capacity, education, law, economics, and technology. So again, you really have to work hard for that, that, um, acronym. But it really does embrace what they're trying to do. So we have partners in South Dakota. This is a Lakota Indian tribe. And they, uh, for good reasons, are mistrustful of sending their clinical samples off to this person, that person. They said, we want to do it ourselves. Can you teach us how to do that? So we want to run our own biobanks. We want to be able to understand ourselves, what we want to study, how we want to burst that information, if at all, if we keep it in the community, and what are the ethnic and ethical and legal ramifications of that kind of thing? So, for example, to what extent can we have some of those samples and help them out? Because if you want to keep it within their organization, how does that happen? Um, And so... Um, this is really exciting because there are some health issues within these communities um, that are very unique to these communities, like, just like other communities. And they want, then they can actually collect the data and then using other partners, including Stanford, but not necessarily only Stanford, to try to understand how to analyze them and see what risk factors they might have for certain diseases um, and how they can, and more importantly, how you can predict whether those there are ways to prevent those diseases from occurring. So this has been a really exciting population. These are some of our partners. Um, they, here they are at Stanford, and here they are, um, again, also at Stanford, although we did have, we've did had many site visits there, and uh, we're teaching them a lot, um, and we're learning with them together also about how to set up their own biobanks and get them interested in their own, taking charge of their own health. Um, I won't go through the aims, but basically the high-level area is really to just establish this biobank and try to help them do some pilot studies just so that they understand on their own what do they want to look at. Now, it turns out that this particular tribe has a number of autoimmune illnesses that even other Lakota tribes within that same region do not have. So they want to understand how they're different from these other groups. Now, not only would it help them to understand why do they have this predisposition and what are the risk factors, but might teach us about autoimmune diseases for all populations. So this is a study that they wanted to undertake on their own and we're gonna help them T- teach them how to do some of the studies in their labs locally and some of the work that they can't do there we can pull over to Stanford and help as well. So it's really an exciting opportunity and then also at the same time develop implement and evaluate um, health education and literacy. Um, one of the first things we did with all of our projects was bring our community partners in and ask everybody what, what do you think is precision medicine means and what do you think precision health means And everybody put their own definition together, and then we all discussed it, and we all tried to understand how people, because everybody had great ideas, and it isn't one thing to all people, and so just getting that health literacy out there is very important. It gives people the ability to feel that they can control, in some ways, their own health outcomes. The second project is really closer to home. It's called IPOP. Um, again, little acronym. so integrative personalized omics profiling, and omics is a term that just generally means uh, the study of large uh, 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 genetic or la- uh, molecular data sets. So we have genomics, we have metabolomics, we have um, all of these is omics. And we can take, for example, one sample of blood and you can study lots and lots of different markers. Well, one of my colleagues at Stanford is a pediatrician, and he's been working in the communities around uh, San Jose and Stanford for many years among uh, obese young Latino kids to try to do interventions, health interventions, help them to exercise more by dancing or other things, you know, just trying to see what works in keeping kids active and keeping their weight down. Um, And so as part of this group, he's really established over the decades a great relationship with these families. And he asked them permission. Would you be willing to give us a sample of blood as we track you through? So some of the kids are having one intervention and some are having a different one to see if it helps with their control of their weight and other um, health markers. These kids are at very high risk for diabetes um, and so he, he's tracking, um, the, he asked for permission to take blood samples once a year from the kids to see if we could track who pre- predict if there are um, genetic and other markers that predict who might, be go, be, um, might go on to develop diabetes or other uh, other health, health issues. And he got about 98% uh, acceptance because these are families he's worked with for a long time. And so... The, uh, the idea is really to pull out um, all of the different uh, molecular markers in the blood that he's collected and then understand patterns. And again, these are all anonymized, so the kids and the families can get their data back if they'd like. Um, if they don't want to, they don't have to have it. It's, um, it, and the idea is to really try to understand if there, again, risk factors uh, for something that is very, very common, not only in the U.S., but globally, that is obesity and the impact of that on diabetes and other other cardiac diseases for example. So that's a very exciting project. And um, so I just mentioned to you what the goal is here. So looking at these IPOP markers to measure um, obesity and diabetes risk at baseline and then to follow over time to see how this might affect um, this risk over time. It would be wonderful if we could take a blood test from somebody and say, this is your, just like we have now uh, for, say, um, maternal screening for fetuses. Here's your risk of your child developing XYZ disease. This would be a great way to say here's your profile that you are at this much risk for uh, developing these diseases. Um, of course, he's also working on the intervention side, too, so that would be helpful to know. You know, this would, you know, awaken the family to this child, you need to turn the television off or you need to get them outside, et cetera. So those are, um, but that, that can help inform policies that will do that. And then finally, our third project is really interesting also. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a different project. It's how do we communicate all of this information to patients, and how does that cultural how, how do different cultures take up that information, and, more, and do they act on it, and if they don't, why not? And part of this came up from some reports that our, one of our physicians had had over time where, the people, where they felt that a lot of, based on your ethnic and racial background and your cultural background, some people didn't want to know their genetic results. Say, for example, from breast cancer screening. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to do anything about it. Um, and other people were very uh... really uh... hyper aware i want to know what my markers are i want to know what treatments will work and other people just said i don't really want to hear it and it was really interesting to uh, under, to hear about why that uh, what we don't we don't really understand why that occurs and so this project will be a multi-ethnic multilingual two-site project at stanford and at usc where we're gonna focus on uh, hispanic uh... And chinese and white women who are being diagnosed with breast cancer and really trying to help them, uh, and and communi- and how pe- and how the doctors communicate with them about that information, and um, and then and not only that, how the communication style works with that patient, and to see what they do with that information over time, to understand um, how um, how and why the information was had some uptake or or did not have uptake. So, it's really important. All of us know we're not supposed to smoke, drink, you know, get it, like we have to get a lot of extra, et cetera. And yet, many of us, every one of us, has a different response to that. So, it would be helpful to understand what is it, how do you communicate information in a better way, in a way that can maybe get the best health outcome for that person, or to understand what the obstacles to communication might be. So, here, the project is to assess genomic confidence of clinicians communicating. This and that means, um, you know, how well does the doctor understand what they're talking about, basically. And then there will be, with, again, with permission, they're audio taping the information to, uh, to be able to study how the, those interactions are working and whether there's keywords that seem to be uh, carried across the, the successful um, interactions compared to those that are not so successful. And then to identify when patients share with their family members and how that's influenced by their health literacy um, and other factors. To see if we can overcome some of, uh, you know, some, uh, some of the health disparities that we see among racial and ethnic groups that may not really have sufficient health literacy and how do we get them to that point. So those are our three projects and we have five years to work on them and so far we're just enrolling patients at this point. Um, and, um, Actually, with the bracelet project, we're working with the um, Lakota group to try to help them set up their biobank. Um, and so it's going uh, reasonably well. I don't, we don't have results at this point, but um, we work very carefully with the community. And I talked to you about our five cores. Um, our consortium core and our implementation core are great. We wanted to make them one core, but, and I said, no, you have to have two separate ones. So we basically, functionally, they're one group. We pull them all together. So this is uh, uh, just a picture of a meeting that we had last year at Stanford of some of our community consortium members from the actual projects. But in addition to this group of people, we bring in partners around the Stanford area from different uh, minority groups. So we have Vietnamese, Chinese, uh, African American, Latino, um, other Asian subpopulations, uh, you know, other groups as well, and really have them come in and meet with us and, and, and over, uh, review the data, the work that we've done to date. And we actually had a really fun uh, all-day all session with this group where we had people present their own stories to each other so that it was a really, um, really unifying experience. So we're really trying to create the strategic alliance and build capacities for people to really take control over their own health and their own health literacy and then evaluate our projects, and the community members know what's best for them. So they tell us, you know, we didn't really understand why you did it this way. We think you should do it this way. Um, and we really have been able to build a better interaction and I think a better uh, studies and programs in the long run to be, able to, um, to be able to speak in the language that people understand best. Um, we also have some really nice opportunities. The NIH allowed us to, uh, to grant a few pilot grants to our community members so they can go out and do their own pilot work in their communities. A lot of these are around health education and health literacy education. And so we just, we're, we're in our second round. We're just going to be awarding our second set of uh, grants in the next uh, couple of months. And so these are our partners. This, again, is that group here you saw. We had our annual meeting, and then we have... We bring people back and forth quite a bit. We travel there to, um, to the different sites, but we also bring people in so that they can get to know one another and really understand the overall um, pro- um, objectives of this project. And so the implementation core is really meant to try to create some guidelines so that communities can have something to communicate back into their populations based on what we have learned so far about how to work together. And we are trying to understand what the best way is to communicate with populations around the area, given that they may have obstacles, maybe there's language obstacles, cultural obstacles, just transportation obstacles. So one of the things we found out is that most of the people didn't want to have a conference at Stanford. They were afraid to come to Stanford. It's too big. It's a little intimidating. They prefer to have it in their local community center. We couldn't afford to have that many meetings, so we did do. We did have individuals going out to the community centers, but when we had our big meeting, we had it in a little, a more low-key building, um, and really engaged the community that way. But we were really surprised that people just felt, and they also didn't want to have it in the hospital. On that part, we can understand. The hospital is certainly intimidating, and so we had it on campus, but often another. Uh, like a, a gra- undergraduate building. So um, so you learn a lot about how people want to be messaged and, um, and and I think we've, we've learned a lot about that. And again, I mentioned the analytics and modeling core, really trying to come up with cutting-edge statistical methods to understand how to process large amounts of data in a way that ma- really is meaningful. Um, and then our lab core does all the laboratory studies. And so far, we've had many, tri- finally, we've had many uh, visits to the different so- sites, particularly in South Dakota, but other sites as well. We have had these focus groups over time. We continue to do that. Um, and we have a lab LabCorp partnership in Mexico. They're trying to do the same thing in Mexico, um, uh, looking at genetic uh, predisposition to uh, immune markers that predict uh, immunity to, uh, develop, uh, to, to vaccines. And so they wanted to partner with us. And we had our annual community consortium meeting, which was really exciting. All really run by the community members telling their stories about how their diseases were or were not handled well, what they thought might work better. Um, It was really um, edifying for a lot of us and across the board. And we also have been publishing work. So um, I'd like to stop there, and thank you so much for your attention.